You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. About hell, I have two questions. First, as hell is a core claim of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, does the truth claim of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam depend on the reality of hell? Second, does the nature of hell offer insight into what the Abrahamic God may be like? Many believers today seem embarrassed to talk about hell. What kind of God would create hell? Eternal punishment seems, well, absurd as well as terrifying. A subpar performance by an all-good, merciful God. Does hell reveal God? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. I have a bias, which I declare up front. In dealing with questions of God, I go more for philosophers than for theologians or clerics. In dealing with hell, this goes double. But to begin, I'd like a philosopher of religion who is a believer in God. Atheistic philosophers would simply and peremptorily dismiss hell as ludicrous, which could save me a lot of time or deprive me of insight. I meet a philosopher who specializes in the nature of God, Edward Werenga. Ed, if I want to really explore the God of the Abrahamic religions, how much do I have to accept the reality of a heaven and a hell? I think it's certainly a clear teaching in, in the tradition I know best, Christianity, that there is life after death. There are both sort of religious and sort of philosophical reasons for thinking that there's a, some kind of heaven. The biblical religious ones are that God has a promise of salvation and, uh, and of, of eternal life, and presumably that's at least to some extent to be in heaven. Philosophers have sometimes argued that stuff happens to people in this life that do they don't deserve, and if there's any way that God is ever going to make it up to people who undeservedly suffer and get no reward in this life, there'd have to be another life where they do get some kind of reward. You um, know, I haven't heard much about hell so far. I don't have a lot to say about hell. I mean, I think it's... Are you embarrassed uh, by it? It's harder to give philosophical justification for there being a hell. What Christians should think is that God has offered salvation to them and that they should hope that God is successful with, with everybody and that there's no eternal punishment for anybody because God's ultimately successful. I can't see how, and some people aren't going to make it, ought to be an article of my faith. That just seems a, a nasty thing to think and to minimize my hope for what God is able to accomplish. Certainly the idea of an eternal punishment for a finite evil just seems wildly unfair. Some philosophers have said, oh, okay, but people could be in hell and they continue to sin and therefore every day they're in, they deserve another day in. 
it could be that there are people that survive death and don't go, that, go to heaven because they just steadfastly resist God's entreaties. I don't think it would be utterly unjust for God to keep someone in existence after death and not let them into heaven if the person really didn't want to go into heaven, if the person wanted to be completely estranged from God. The true understanding of what I believe to be the real God is a God who has offered some promises to people, has called people to him. So if you were to take any of that seriously, I think that requires something beyond what we ever accomplish in this life. There is a role for um, life and the resurrection in which people continue to, to do the kinds of things that God wants them to do, only this time they do it without fault, without flaw. Heaven is a reward, a promise of God, and hell is recompense for the evil of life. A nice parallelism, at least at first. But hell, as Ed hesitates, is harder. Infinite punishment for finite sin seems wildly excessive, revengeful, even sadistic, not fair and just. Hell is a test of God to see if there really is this kind of God. And hell can't be hidden. It's right there, front and center, in almost all the major religions. You have to deal with it. How to deal with hell? I go to Oxford, England, to meet a leading analytic philosopher of religion, Richard Swinburne. Richard, I know, will not avoid the problems of hell. Richard, how can we understand in our modern life the traditional concepts of heaven and hell? Well, in the course of our lives, we make ourselves certain sorts of persons. And it's a characteristic of humans that each time we do a good act, it's easier to do a good act next time. Each time we do a bad act, it's easier to do a bad act next time. Uh, if we go on doing what is good, doing good becomes natural to us. And so we gradually lose temptations to do bad, or at any rate, we, we form a very a settled desire never to do anything bad. We may occasionally give in to it, but uh, the direction of our lives is fixed. And likewise, the other way around. If people always give in to temptation, then they gradually, not merely always give in to temptation, but uh, moral beliefs cease to mean anything to them. So, at the end of life, some of us become naturally good, some of us lose our sense of morality, and many of us, of course, are still in the middle. What will a good God do with such people? Well, obviously, if they... they uh, formed a desire to do good, they're, they're worth keeping alive and worth giving an opportunity to, to go on doing lots of good acts. What would God do with somebody who had formed a, a naturally evil uh, attitude to life? Well, uh, he could, of course, destroy them, but one thing he certainly wouldn't do is allow them an opportunity to go on doing lots of evil for eternity. There, there's a reason of allowing people to have free choice between good and evil for temporary uh, period while they form their character, but once their character is formed, there, there really is no reason for uh, letting a person who has chosen to do evil go on doing evil. So such people will want to hurt pe other people, but uh, God will deprive them of the opportunity to do so, and so inevitably they are going to be in a distressed situation. Of course you could say, well, God could give them another chance, uh, start them again, 
but they have over the course of their lives sort of decided to, to become a certain sort of person and to force a character on, on a person is not right. So uh, if God is to keep them alive, they will be in an unhappy situation and the good people, because they want to do good, will be in a happy situation. And that, I think, is part of what heaven and hell is. It's not so much a place, though, of course, it will be a place, because if they're embodied people, there must be a place where they are. And uh, being embodied gives us a public presence. That's not to say, despite what I said earlier, necessarily that, it, <laughs> that anybody does go to hell, but it rather looks as if some people are heading that way. Uh, it's not a Christian doctrine that anybody is in hell, but it certainly is a Christian doctrine that there is that possibility open to people if they choose. I think that the greatest choice that God could give to human beings is the choice of the sort of being they are to be, and if they'd have a really good, good a significant choice, they must be allowed to choose to become, not merely on an individual time, to do a good or bad action, but to become a good or bad sort of person, and that, that carries with it uh, the, the views of, of heaven and hell. To Richard, heaven and hell are real. And although they are places in the sense that embodied persons need places, heaven and hell are more states of being than locations. Richard crafts a coherent and internally consistent structure. God gives humans real choice. We have true independence to make our own decisions. We have true responsibility to develop our own characters. But I still cannot get over hell's punitive permanence, the hammer of finality on the anvil of eternity. An easy answer, or rationalization, is that hell is more metaphor of mind than fact of substance. Key is the theology. In Oxford, I meet a leading Baptist theologian, professor of systematic theology, Paul Fittis. Heaven and hell are certainly real, but they're real not as places, but as states of being or states of relationship. God makes room within God's self for the whole of created reality to dwell. Talk about heaven is trying to understand that engagement beyond the bounds of death and beyond the bounds of history. So it's a continuity of that engagement, with a, but with a new intensity and new possibilities. We can only speak of this in terms of image and metaphor because this is something completely new. And analogously, we would have the same thing with hell. Well, God is humble enough to allow what God has created uh, to resist the purpose and the love of God. And God bears that pain within God's self. So people are in their life in hell if they are resisting the love of God. The question is, is there a state of being, call it what you will, that continues our conscious life in a heaven and a hell? There is certainly a heaven in that there is a Christian's hope for an even closer engagement with the love and the life of God than they know in this life. The question is, do people remain in a state of isolation from God by their own choice? The Christian hope is that they will not. 
It's not a dogmatic certainty because God has given radical freedom to creation to be itself, but it is a hope that all created beings will be reconciled with God. So are we assuming in this analysis that, number one, there is a conscious life after death, and number two, that that conscious life has an independent personality to it, and number three, that there are categorizations of that afterlife that would be to one degree or another closer to God or further from God. First of all, the Christian view has not been that there is some kind of immortal soul which is completely separate from the body, which somehow floats out of the body and goes on existing on its own. The Christian hope has been for resurrection. That is that God recreates the whole person, something like a body in which we have communication with others and in which we are related to the whole physical Cosmos. And in that resurrected body, there will be an independent personal intelligence. So I will remember that I am me. Yes, with uh, an, an individual identity remaining, but in an, uh, a whole new sphere of relationships. And this is partly what the symbol of the resurrection of the body is saying. So what will we do in the afterlife? If you and I are there, we're going to have the same conversation. I hope so. We'll know a little more. If we are recreated as persons. Persons are always on a journey. They are growing and developing in their relation with others and in relation to the whole world around them. And therefore, we have to think in terms of growth, development, adventure. Heaven and hell are not equivalent ideas because heaven is about God's purpose for creation. Hell is what human beings do in resisting this purpose and love of God. And our hope is that no one will be left in that state. Paul's heaven of relationships, growth, development, adventure and creativity sounds pretty good, irrespective of whether it's real. Paul's hell, however, sounds eviscerated gutted of the stark and dreadful literalism that Christian tradition asserts. What's the real hell of the Christian God? There's no backing away from this awkward question. Because to know hell is to know God. If God created hell, hell reflects the character of its creator. I should get different perspectives, broaden the inquiry. Some say that direct doctrinal lineage to the original church comes through the Eastern Orthodox Church. I visit an Eastern Orthodox priest and theologian, Dean of St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary, John Beer. Heaven and hell is as real as God himself is. And the question really comes down to how are you going to respond to God? The only absolute certainty in our life is that we're going to die. Agree there. <laughs> Absolutely, there's no, no, no way around that one. We yeah? start on bedrock together. Okay, and so in a very real sense, the only question we each have to address is, how am I going to die? And in a sense, the whole thing depends on how I respond to that question, okay? I would suggest that the heart of the Christian revelation is that Christ shows us what it is like to be God in the way that um, he dies for our sake, 
and that the response to that is to lead a sacrificial life for others. Look, I understand all of that. The okay, but the way I'm going to, to develop that is to say, if I learn how to die to myself before my actual physical death, when I come to my physical death, I'll be able to say, into thy hands I commend my spirit and die peacefully. If I don't do that, yeah, if in fact my heart is really with my books, my bicycle, my right, family, right. my public image, then I could be absolutely sure that my physical death would be separation from that. Yes. Yeah? And that would be painful. And I would suggest that the imagery that you get in the Christian tradition is a way of describing the pain of that. Is that pain prior to death or something that happens after death? Both. I, don't, well, well, I, 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 don't I can know. follow you up I until death. It's know. either psychology or reality. I want to know what's happening afterwards. We got so, to deal so with this. <laughs> okay. no, nobody's been there and come back to tell us. Okay. So we well, can't. Well, so, so the we Christian revelation that. claims to be able to tell us. I want to know if you, if, if you believe that or not. That's all. The Christian revelation is that Christ is the image of God and we conform ourselves to him if we want to be like that. Okay? Okay, so there's a lot of other and, things. And, too. The, and the, the determining moment of that is our physical death. Okay. And am I going I, to say, I into my hands I commend my spirit, or am I going to say, no, give me more time, I want to enjoy my bicycle okay. more? I'm going to take, I, I like my bicycle, I want more time, I, I hit death. So it's going to be I, painful. Uh, it's, the death it's going is to be painful. Be, what happens to me afterwards? You're going to live with that pain. I, oh, no, I'm already dead. You're going to continue with that pain. I'm going to continue. Am I going to have a conscious life? I would say yes. And, and I'd have a conscious life and I'd maintain that pain. I, I'd be alive forever with the pain of not having my bicycle. How that pain then works, we can't answer. Now, there will be Christian standard ages who will say, use the image of purgatory. Yeah. That, 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 that pain is purgative in order to allow you to detach yourself from what you had held on to. Right, so I'd, ha I'd have a period of time to get rid of my bicycle and maybe... And maybe to get rid of your attachment to your bicycle, yeah, whatever. Right, 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 right. Yeah. The, the, the difficulty, of course, is that we habituate ourselves and our habits become almost like second nature. Even, even in, in afterlife. Yeah, absolutely. Right. The, these right. habits are not, and I think that's why you get the image of, of burning, you know, to burn yeah, away yeah. these so, habits. So, so, which so I'll be there for a while. <laughs> I'm not going to answer for you. But the question is, how are we going to respond? And if we respond in a particular way now, we learn to overcome all of these things in order to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven, into thy hands I commend my spirit. If we don't, if we continue to build up our habituated patterns of existence now, we will still have to deal with them hereafter. There is an afterlife, John asserts, with the determining moment of our future condition being at physical death. This is decision time, he says, when we shall conform ourselves to God's image or suffer the pain of separation from our physical desires. If hell is this pain of separation, then the psychological insight could be profound irrespective of theological import. But God, not Freud, is here whom I seek. And the common Christian doctrine of hell, eternal punishment or estrangement from God forever, seems so terrorizing, so abusive, that it taints my whole attitude toward religion. Can the God of this hell possibly exist? To maintain hope, I must rationalize hell. For years, I've been wanting to meet philosopher Eleanor Stump to explore her defense of Christian doctrines. 
When our schedules finally coincide, I hit her with hell. Eleanor, if there's a God, how can there possibly be a hell where for temporal sin, I would be given eternal punishment? Well, I think that's a good question, but I think it's conceived in the wrong sorts of terms, see? So you're thinking of hell like this. You're thinking God is an accountant and he measures how much evil you've done in your life, gets his calculator out and figures how much punishment that's worth and then makes a mistake and gives infinite punishment for a short-term sin. That's the wrong way to think about it entirely. Here's the right way to think about it. How do you love somebody? And what do you want if you love them? What you want is to be united with them. My heart and your heart, my mind and your mind, coming together into one so we can together be bonded in a kind of harmony that produces both joy and peace. Okay, if that's what I want, then guess what? There gotta be two wills operative here, one in me and one in you. Because unless there's a will in you as well as a will in me, we're not gonna get any bondedness, no union, no harmony. So as long as what I want is union in love, I gotta let you have a will too, see? And if you have a will too, here's, here's the bottom line. You can use it to unite with me in love or you can use it to reject me. And that's what I gotta accept as a possibility. You can reject me forever. If you go on forever, you can reject me forever. Now you might think to yourself, this is ridiculous. The guy sees hell. The first minute he's in hell, he's gonna think, oh, wow, what was I thinking? I'm out of here, let's do it over again. I really want what you want, okay? But notice that in a case like that, the guy doesn't really want union and love. He doesn't like God any more than he did like. He just wants to get out of where he is. You can take him out of where he is and put him anywhere at all, and he still won't like God. He still won't like the good stuff. In other words, he is a hell producer in himself. So hell in the old tradition isn't God's torture chamber. It's where God does what he can to produce as much connection to goodness as he can for people fundamentally committed to hating the good. That's the idea. So, so for your will and my will to have a friendship, I understand that. Yeah. But how can you equate God, if there is a God, with any individual? It's such an imbalance of power. It such, is absolutely. So asymmetrical. It is it's absolutely. It's very unfair what you've just it said. It is absolutely an imbalance of power, absolutely. And so God has got to proceed very carefully. So one thing you can say is, look, maybe, maybe what God should have done to empty hell is right in the starry skies of heaven. Hey, I'm God, I'm here, think about it. But then we'd have exactly what you're worried about. So what God has to do in order to avoid exactly this abuse of power that you're talking about is, he has to present himself to us, not by means that bring home to us his power, but by means that bring home to us his love and his goodness. For any of the individuals who wind up in hell in whatever period of time, is there ever any chance that any of them will legitimately uh, come out of that? It turns out that's a more complicated question than you'd think. C.S. Lewis has an idea. His idea is, look, there's a, a regular bus line from, from hell to heaven. And anybody in hell who wants to can get on the bus Head for heaven, you like it there, you can stay there, no problem. But this is what he says, for those people who get on the bus and 
get off in heaven and stay there. They were never really in hell in the first place. It was that what they were in that seemed to be hell was for them actually something like a purgative antechamber to heaven. Because as long as that kind of C.S. Lewis move is, is available, the, que the question, does anybody ever get out of hell, is a more complicated question than you think. Okay. For what really, really counts as hell, does anybody ever get out? The monotheistic tradition I know unanimously answers no to that question. Nobody who's ever really in hell ever gets out. So since that's a communal view, I want to tread carefully. If the community turned out to be wrong on that score, and there was a bus line from hell to heaven. One way. One way, yeah, <laughs> just one way. Who cares? What would that really change? Oh, I'd lie. If you think hell sounds archaic, a primitive, embarrassing idea, you have no business fooling around with any of the religions that come from Abraham. Hell is central to Christianity, certainly to Islam, less so to Judaism. There is a clear line of religious logic from God to human purpose to an afterlife to the real existence of some kind of hell. If hell is of the traditional kind, eternal punishment, pain and separation forever, I'd doubt such a God. I'd like God to exist. So here's my hope for hell, a hell of never-ending opportunity, a state of being, a sort of place, but ultimately a place with no residence. But hope is not belief, and belief is not fact. In exploring God, examining hell takes us closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.